This is week number 34 in our study of the book of Daniel, and we're over in chapter 8, and you remember in this chapter, Daniel opens up for us um, the second and third kingdoms that we've looked at multiple times through the book, Uh, the second kingdom being the silver that we saw all the way back in chapter 2 in the great statue, and the, uh, <clears throat> the third kingdom being the bronze that was represented in that uh, same statue. And then over in chapter 7, uh, the bear represented the second kingdom, the bear that was humped up on one side, and then also um, the leopard who had four wings on its back and four heads represents the third kingdom. And in that chapter 2 and chapter 7, Daniel did not give us any details, or Daniel didn't see any details about those two kingdoms. Just a little bit, but really not anything uh, in particular. But here in chapter 8 is where we get a bigger, broader picture of the second and third beasts or kingdoms um, that have been seen multiple times and will continue to be seen as we go through the book. Um, In particular... Chapter 8 opens up the third kingdom. And you remember down in verse 20, Daniel's told explicitly that the, uh, the ram that comes on the scene, who had two horns, one higher than the other, he's told explicitly that that ram is the kings of Media, Media and Persia. And so we have the Medo-Persian uh, empire represented in this ram who comes on the scene. Uh, he's... Uh, running around no one can stand against him until a goat comes on the scene you remember that goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes uh, and that he came in wrath and anger and knocked down the ram broke his horns and stomped on him Um, and so the the ram is done away with and the goat then glorifies himself and as soon as the goat began to glorify himself his horn was broken and in the place of that horn four other horns came up and out of one of those uh, four horns there comes another smaller horn and that's the really the vision that Daniel sees and we've talked about this he's told uh, in verse 21 explicitly that the um, goat with the conspicuous horn is the kingdom of Greece and then he's told in verse 22 that the four horns that come out of the one horn that's broken are four kingdoms that come out of Greece. So there's a lot of detail given here, and you can take it and look back at ancient history and see very clearly that the the Greeks came to power when Alexander the Great um, was conquering lands all across the earth, really, all across the the area that we've been talking about, all out of um, Greece into Macedonia, down into Saudi Arabia, into northern Africa, over into the Mesopotamia, all the way across India. All of this was lands that Alexander the Great conquered in his 12 years of rule. But then we also know that as soon as he had done that, that in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar in, um, in Babylon in 323 B.C., Alexander the Great died at the age of 32. And that subsequent to his death, well, just before he died, he called in four of his generals and gave them his kingdom, really. They all became kings in their own rights and, um, and took over most of what had been Alexander, Alexander the Great's kingdom. And so we know those four um, that came out of there were Cassandra and Lysimachus and Seleucus and Ptolemy. We, we know, I mean, that's all detailed in history. We have a lot of history, a lot of uh, written artifacts that go back to that time. And there's, there's very little doubt that that's what this book is talking about because it's explicitly given that we're talking about the, the reign of the Medo-Persians and then the reign of Greece and then the reign of the four kingdoms that came out of Greece. And so Daniel's given those details, so we take them and we look at what has happened in in history that we know about. So that's kind of where we're at. So what I'd like to do this morning is uh, begin reading again in verse 8, read down through 14, and then talk a little bit about what we were talking about last week, which leads into 
of the 2300 days that I want to try and understand today. Okay, so uh, this was a week of reading for me. There's a lot of material to read, and uh, believe me, clarity comes slowly as you try and read all of this. So um, beginning in chapter 8 and verse 8 of Daniel, there the scripture reads. Well, let's, yeah, verse 8. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in his place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal to the commander of the host. And it removed the regular sacrifices from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another one said to that holy one, to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. So we, we've talked about a good bit of this, and you'll, you remember that um, this little horn comes out of one of the four kingdoms. That's clearly given. And if you look at the, the area, the territory that's given there, you remember... Um, that it says it goes, he goes to the south, he goes to the east, and he goes toward the beautiful land. And so the, the south would be down toward the, uh, the ocean or the seas. They're south of, um, of really Jerusalem and everything, uh, and Babylon and that whole area of the Mesopotamia. Uh, to the east would be all of India, and then to the beautiful land would be to the Mediterranean Sea, including Jerusalem and Canaan and, and what would be called the beautiful land in scripture. And so that territory is controlled after Alexander the Great dies by um, Seleucus. And he sets up his dynasty and his kingdom. Some people will call it the Seleucians. Some people will call it the Syrians. Um, but nevertheless, it's all the same kingdom. And so that's the kingdom from which the little horn comes. And we talked about that out of that kingdom came uh, a king named uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus Epiphanes, as detailed well and chronicled well in history, went against Jerusalem. He went down into Egypt to fight against Ptolemy, and then on his way back, he came through Jerusalem. And he did that at least, we know, twice. And so uh, that's what's being described here. And, and so we, we've got a Greek king or one who came from the Greek kingdom who goes against Jerusalem and represents this um, small horn that came exceedingly great out of one of the four horns that came out of Alexander the Great's kingdom. I think all of that is pretty clear that that's what we're talking about. So we did a comparison last week between this small horn of chapter 8, which is Antiochus Epiphanes, and the small horn of chapter 7, which we're unsure who that person is. Um, and you remember that small horn, well, we'll talk about it. Um, we came up with four things that are similar, at least four, that are similar between the two horns, small horns, one of chapter 7 and one of chapter 8. And um, the first thing that we talked about is that both of them overcome the Jews, or they make war against the Jews, and they gain the upper hand. They kill, slaughter many of the Jews, um, the chapter 7 said it wears them down. He wages war and wears them down. Chapter 8 um, says that he tramples them under his feet. So in, in both of those represent uh, a lot of Jews being killed at the hands of these two horns. Then the second thing we talked about is that they both magnify themselves. They both boast. 
They both speak against God. Um, they're very arrogant and outspoken, and uh, they blaspheme against the true God. And so that's the second thing that's similar. The third thing that's similar is that they both um, altered Jewish religious activities, both the festivals and the sacrifices and the laws. Both of them intend and actually do alter those things that the Jews would do to worship their one true God. Um, Not the least of which is that both of these overtake the temple of God and um, defile it in, in, um, in gross and enormous ways. And so um, that's the one thing. Then the, the fourth thing that they have in common, which is really on the positive side, is that both of them are destroyed without the agency of man, Scripture says. It's not men who come against them and destroy them. It's Almighty God himself who comes against them and ultimately shuts them down. You remember the word annihilate and destroy back in um, chapter 7, and in chapter 8 they're also destroyed, or the little horn is uh, done away with. And we'll talk about how that happens today. So we have these things that they have in common and are very similar, and so there's a lot of parallels between chapter 7 and chapter 8, but there are also differences. And the first difference we talked about, which I think is probably the most significant one, is that the little horn of chapter 7 comes out of the ten horns that are in the fourth beast. The little horn in chapter 8 that we're talking about now comes out of the four horns which are on the third beast. So we've got two different kingdoms, two different people talked about here. They're not the same little horn. Okay, because they come out of uh, different ages and they come out of different kingdoms. So why they do a lot of things that are similar, there's no doubt about that. They are not the same because they come out of different kingdoms. And, and that's made very distinct in Daniel. Then the second thing that is very clear is that they are different in their times of domination, especially of the Jewish people. You remember back in chapter 7 that the little horn that comes out of the ten horns of the fourth beast, he dominates or um, breaks his um, agreement for a time, times, and half a time. Very familiar to you. We've looked at it several times in Daniel. We looked over in Revelation of where that's at. That represents years. It's three and a half years that this little horn of the fourth beast um, comes against the, the Jews. And so that's pretty clear. But you'll see in uh, verse 14 of chapter 8 that the time of domination, the time that the sacrifices are stopped until the time when they begin again is 2,300 days. Now, that's a little over six years. So that doesn't match to anything that we see in the timing of the, um, of the little horn in chapter 7. So the, they come out of different kingdoms. The the kingdoms are clearly represented as two different beasts and their times of domination are clearly different. So these are two different individuals, okay? They have a lot of similarities, but they're different, and they're both humans, but they're different humans, okay? And what I'll try and show you today is that they differ from one another by at least 2,200, 2,300 years. And so... um, you know, Daniel sees them all lined up side by side, but from the details he's given, in our view, from where we look back into ancient history, we know they're separated by a significant difference. Okay, so today, you look at verse 13. We, we've covered uh, 11 and 12 pretty well last week, and so today we try and get into to verse 13, and you have um, this question that's asked. Now, you have a, a holy one speaking and then another one who speaks to that holy one, right? So these are most likely, they're in Daniel's vision. They appear to be a man, right? But this, um, this first one is given the name of Gabriel. So this is probably Gabriel the angel that we know from Scripture. Now, this would be the first time in the Old Testament that an angel was given by name. Okay, so this is significantly different than anything that's been given up to this point in the Revelation. 
And so this is Daniel given the name of the angel who looks like a man. Now, why would Gabriel appear as a man in this vision? Just think about it. Okay, so he wouldn't be so fierce. Um, I mean, you know, uh, we don't know exactly what an angel looks like, but we're given some descriptions of them. And, Dan- and Gabriel being an archangel would be even more overpowering. So in order so he can come in this vision and talk, because he does talk with Daniel, he appears as a man so that Daniel won't be so overwhelmed by him. Now, Gabriel will come back later in chapter 9, and uh, you know everybody calls it Daniel's vision of the 70 weeks. It actually isn't Daniel's vision. It's Gabriel's prophecy. Because there is no vision, Gabriel just tells him what's going to happen. So it's really the prophecy of Gabriel as he was given it by God. But anyway, Gabriel will come back in chapter 9. Now, you also have this voice that speaks out and asks him a question. So what's the question that's posed here? What's it say? How long... Will, will this horror really, right, it's described as horror, go on in which the sacrifices are stopped? Now, if these are angels, are the voice of God asking the question, then why does he ask that question? Because clearly he already knows the answer. So why does he ask the question? <laughs> You hope I know the answer to the questions I ask, right? He asked him the question for the benefit of Daniel because Daniel wants to ask the question. I mean, he says that later on, that he wanted to know what it meant. And that'll come up in just a couple of verses. And so this voice from the, between the riverbanks, it says, probably the voice of God, asked Gabriel or another angel, or we're not exactly sure. But anyway, they have this conversation in which one asks the other a question for the benefit of Daniel. Now, you know that because of, look at verse 14. Who's the answer directed to? To Daniel, right? Um, he, He says in verse 14, he said to me. This is Daniel writing. And so this answer, this question was asked for the benefit of Daniel. And then the answer is given directly to Daniel. Now, he talks about the um, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? And we talked about the, this a little bit last week. What is the regular sacrifice that is common in the Jewish manner of worshiping God? Well, there's a lot of festivals, right? And Yom Kippur would be one of those. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about the regular sacrifices. Right. Out of, look over at Exodus 38. We look at this Exodus 29, verse 38. We looked at this last week, but it's always good to see that this is what we're talking about, and this is what goes on for 2,300 days. Okay? Daniel, tw- uh, Exodus 29, verse 38. What did I say? I said 38, and then I came, I never know. Exodus 29, verse 38. Okay. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. Two one-year-old lambs each day continuously. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. So every day that the temple was active, in the morning, there would be a lamb slaughtered and offered on the, uh, on the altar. And in the evening, there would be a second lamb slaughtered and offered on the, on the altar. And so that went on every day, no matter what day it was, special days and all included. You had this sacrifice that went on continuously as long as the temple was active. 
Okay, so that's the sacrifice that we're talking about when he says, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? Okay, so we we get down and he says, in verse 14, he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. Now, I've read a lot about this. And there are all kinds of far-fetched theories that come out of this verse. I mean, crazy stuff. But, and there's also some good discussion that comes out of it. 2,300 days is how long in years? A little over six, right? Like six and a third or something like that. So you've got this time that's a little over six years that matches to nothing else in eschatology scripture nothing there's nowhere else where you'll find something that lasts for a little over six years so you have this problem right that you can't sync it up with anything else. It clearly doesn't match the time times and half a time given of the little horn right because that's not uh, 2300 days that's 1260 days or 1290 in some places in scripture and we talked about that a little bit. So that's not it. So because it doesn't match, there are people who try and force some matches here. And the most popular theory is that because it's talking about a sacrifice in the morning and another one at evening, that that really counts as two. And so we're not talking about 2,300 days. We're talking about half that many because there's two sacrifices every day. Well, even if you do that, okay, then you got a little over three years, and it still doesn't match anything. And, and so that doesn't make a lot of sense. And, and there's a second reason that doesn't make any sense, because when the Scripture talks about um, more evenings and mornings, that terminology, it's not talking about twice a day or two in one day. Cause it, and you can see that very early. Turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 5. Okay, and this, and this is just the first place where it's given in Scripture. It's given many times in Scripture in the same format and in the same way. And it's, it's very clear what it says here. Genesis 1, verse 5. It's the first day, right? God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning one day. That's the same terminology used over in verse 14 of chapter 8, there was, you sacrifice one in the evening and one in the morning, one day, 2,300 days, okay? Now, it's not given in years here. It's given in literal days, and so that would be revolutions of the earth, right? I mean, it doesn't matter whose calendar you're using or what the dates are or when it was in history. It doesn't matter when you talk about days, right? Because a day is a cycle of the globe. And so it doesn't matter whose calendar you're using here. If you started on the first day and you counted 23 sunups, then you get to the 2300, 2300, whatever, 2300 (laughs) days later, right? And so that's what he's literally talking about here. So I read a bunch of stuff about all of this and um, really frustrated would probably be the right word. Because you, this I know, that God is precise. And when he gives 2,300 days, he means 2,300 days. He doesn't mean a little more than that or a little less than that. He means 2,300 days. We'll talk about that more in chapter 9 when he talks about um, 70 weeks of 7 and, and how precise that is. But I, this I know is that God would not have put it in scripture if it wasn't 2,300 days. So I went through and tried to make sense of this. Now, as you do this, you get frustrated because like if you go read, uh, like I did last week, 1 Maccabees or any of, the, any of the Apocrypha, they count up in years of the kingdom, okay? Yeah, you know, like they'll talk about uh, Antiochus came to power in uh, the... I can't remember the exact date, but in the 137th date of the kingdom of the Greeks. Now, what it really means is in the the kingdom of the Syrians. Okay, so they count up 
as you go through the Maccabees. And there are some very specific references in that historical book. All right? But you and I, we count down as we go toward the, the coming of Christ, right? I mean, 200 B.C. is before 100 B.C. And so we're counting down. So you've got these different counting systems going on. And just to add to the confusion, you also have that the years don't exactly match. Their January isn't our January or whatever month it is. You know, they start like three months after we do or before, however you want to look at it. And so the years don't sync up. So you find yourself saying it was in 169 slash 170 B.C., something like that. And not only that, the months don't match up, right? The days of the months, they start their month in the middle of the month where we start ours at the beginning. And, and so as you talk about months, you even talk about like Kislev is uh, November, December. And you, you can't make anything line up like you want it to, okay? And that's just the way it is. And historical documents are all that way. Some count up, some count down, some start at different dates. And so you're, you're trying to synchronize all this stuff which can't be synchronized. And then to add to that, you've got a lot of historians writing and people making claims and stating stuff that this happened in 172 B.C. and others saying it happened in 171, some saying it happened in 167. And so you've got all these different opinions about when this stuff actually happened. Okay. Do we know how long Antioch ruled? Yeah, we do. So Antiochus, and, and so this is where, that's where you start, right? You, you start with things that we absolutely are, are pretty certain of, pretty certain that these things happen, okay? Now, in addition to this, now, the, uh, the, the Maccabees were written in the middle of the second century <coughs> B.C. So they're written about the time all this happens, Okay, so they're, they're pretty trustworthy, and they give exact dates and sometimes days of the month. And so it's a, it's a pretty um, well-accepted document because it was written at the time when all this stuff was happening. Now, it just so happens, there's a man in there um, who's named Matthias, who's the son of John. Matthias has five sons. The middle of those sons is a guy named Judas, surname Maccabees, Maccabus. So that's where we get uh, Matthias Maccabus, and that's where we get Judas Maccabus, and that's why it's called the Maccabees. And so this all goes on. Now, when he's on his deathbed, he he calls his five sons together, and he he gives them all roles, and he, he says that Judas is the warrior. He's the third son, and so he'll be your captain. And so he names him out to be captain. But he also, at the same time, gives this long recount of men in Jewish history who were faithful. And he quotes people like Abraham. He, call, um, he calls out um, Jacob. He calls out David. He calls out Caleb. All these men who were faithful to God. And in that list, he calls out Daniel, who was faithful in the lion's den. Now, there are many people who try and pin, say this book, the book of Daniel, was written about the same time that the Maccabees were written. All right, now this is a man on his deathbed telling his sons to be faithful and to fight against Antiochus Epiphanes, the strongest king on the planet. And so he's going to use some false prophecy that was written within the last couple of years to try and encourage his sons, very doubtful. Extremely doubtful. Ludicrous, actually. This, he calls out Daniel because the book of Daniel was included in the canon of Scripture by the time you get to the middle of the second century, and they knew that it was true and had been written 400 years earlier. And so he calls out Daniel as one of those faithful men. So don't listen to the garbage about this book was written in the 2nd century B.C. There's plenty of evidence that it was not, that being one of the strongest cases. Okay, that aside, just gets me sometimes. Because, I mean, believe me, when you go to read about this, you also have to read the guys you disagree with, right? you got to know what the arguments are and where they come from. So you, 
be careful when you do that. I don't, I don't want to tell you to go read a bunch of bad doctrine, but when you're looking at stuff like this and trying to reconcile stuff, you have to read all the arguments so that you can understand what they are. So, um, all right, so we get back to the, this we know for sure. Okay, and, and this is well agreed on that in 175 B.C., are in the 137th year of the Syrian kingdom, because that's the way Maccabees would give it, Antiochus was anointed as king when his father, Antiochus III, died, that he became king, okay, 175 B.C. And then we also know for certain that in 163 B.C., Antiochus died, okay? So this that happens in Jerusalem, we know is between 175 and 163 B.C. So that pins it down to those 12 years, right? So six of those 12, we've got this going on in Jerusalem, okay? So then you you start, all you got to do is start in chapter 1 of the Maccabees, and every time it says in the year, just mark it down and see what the event is. And if you do that, what you'll find is that uh, Antiochus becomes king, in 175 B.C., and then um, in, is where you get into the slashes, the 169-170, somewhere right in that time frame, I would really, in my reading of it, peg it at 169 B.C., is when Antiochus first came against Jerusalem, and you remember he he sold 40,000 into slavery, he killed 40,000 in three days, um, ransacked the temple, took all of the precious instruments out of the temple away with him, um, devastated the Jewish people, okay? And not only in Jerusalem, but also outside of Jerusalem, all of Judea, really just ransacked the place. And so that's when he invaded, 169 um, B.C. And then you keep reading, and what you'll come, come to, and this is very significant, is that two years later, he sends one of his commissioners to go in order to collect the, um, what do you call them? Um, the tribute tax from the people. And they come in, and they, they come into Jerusalem, and they say, no problem, we're just here to collect the money, we're not going to, you know, we'll, we'll come in peace, and everything will be good. And so they come into Jerusalem, and they immediately slaughter thousands of Jews. Okay, they go against their word. How surprising, right? And they take all of the money. And in particular, they go into the temple and find the secret treasuries, and they take the secret treasuries. And then they go further. They go, and I mean, this is detailed. They build the city of David with stone walls, okay? And they put a garrison in there who stays there to keep watch of the temple to make sure no one goes into the temple to sacrifice. Because about this same time, Antiochus makes a declaration to all of his kingdoms that they're all to put down their common religions and all to begin to worship the gods that he sets up and the idols that he sets up and to burn incense and offer sacrifices to those idols. And this is the time when he says, and the Jews in particular... You're to stop your festivals. You're to stop your sacrifices, uh, which had already stopped because he had already taken everything out of the temple. You're to not circumcise your children. You're not to read the Torah. You're not to do um, your daily sacrifices. There's no, and if you do homage to God, it's against the law. He totally outlaws all that the Jews would do in order to worship. And, and if you're caught doing that, then you will be killed. And that's the penalty for it. Now, we talked about it last week. There were most of the people, most of the Jews profaned themselves. And they began to sacrifice to the idols of, um, of Antiochus. They began to burn incense. And they had no problem with it at all. They went along with what they were told to do. But there were faithful men and women and children who did not do that. And we talked about this last week about the woman who circumcised her children, then the person who circumcised them, the woman and the child would all be killed. The child would be hung by its neck around her 
uh, neck and, you know, all this horrendous stuff going on. And then we also talked about that on the, this couple of chairs right here are here, on the 25th of each month, the people who have been caught in the previous month doing worship to the one true God would be sacrificed on the altar. Now, this is what I believe is the abomination of desolation because it says in, in that year, and this is, um, this is in um, 167 B.C., two years after um, they first ransacked Jerusalem, they set up, and that's the way Daniel talks about it, that's the way Scripture talks about it, they set up the abomination of desolation, meaning it's not a one-time event. It's not when Antiochus went in and sacrificed the pig. That's not what it's talking about. This is talking about a continuous, ongoing abomination of desolation. And what it was is they built an altar over the altar of God, above it. And on that altar is where they would kill the people who had been faithful to the Jewish religious practices that they had caught in the previous month. And they did that every month on the 25th day of the month, year after year after year. That's the abomination of desolation. is the sacrifice of Jews on the altar, over the altar of God. Clearly an abomination in the sight of God, and it makes the, the temple desolate, meaning no one would go near it because of the abomination. And so that's what the abomination of desolation is, and, and Maccabees will say it was set up in this year. Okay, so that's when that starts. Now, the sacrifices had already been stopped since Antiochus was there in 169. We have the abomination of desolation set up in 167. Then you keep reading, and in 166 is when uh, Matthias, the son of John, who has five sons, dies, is in 166. So it's the year after the abomination of desolation. And in that year, the commissioner, who's still there, who came to collect the tribute tax and, and turned his back on them and killed them and all of that, goes to um, the Maidan, which is where um, the Maccabees lived. Okay, He goes to their city because he's continuing to try and expand the, the control. And he says, you know, everything will be good if you just sacrifice and offer incense to the God Everything will be forgiven, and we won't do anything to you. And, of course, um, Judas stands up in a loud voice and says, no chance, no way that we're going to give up the heritage of our fathers and all of that. And so there begin the wars between the, the Maccabees and Antiochus' people. This is the Maccabean Revolt, uh, right around 166. Okay, and from that time, for the next couple of years... You have these wars going on where you have these overpowering, overbearing armies of Antiochus that are tens of thousands of people going against a thousand or three hundred. I mean, different wars have different numbers of the people who have sided with Maccabee. All right, now, every time the, the, those who are sided with God win over and over and over and over and over. And um, there, there comes a time when Antiochus is going to send another wave of people to go and destroy Judah. And he pays them lots of money, talks about it. It's mainly the Arabians who he's sending in. And because he paid them so much money, he notices that his funds are running low. So he personally goes to Persia to ransack Persia. And he sends one of his chief officers into Judea to, to, um, to kill them, really, to wipe out this revolt that is going on. Now, um, this goes on and on, and uh, Judas Maccabeus continues to win, even against staggering odds. And um, you can read it for yourself, Finally, you get down to 164 B.C. So a couple of years have gone on 
where you have all these wars. Antiochus has gone to Persia. He sent his personal people in to wipe out the, the Judeans. They don't do it. They're sent running. And in 164 B.C., finally, um, Judas and the priest are able to cleanse the temple is the terminology that's given. And they, it goes through elaborate details of how they did that. And they, um, they built uh, new um, instruments of worship that they, uh, it goes in and talks about how they set the showbread table up and put showbread on there. Uh, all the details of the temple restored back to what it needs to be in order for them to perform um, sacrifices according to the law given uh, by Moses. So on, um, in 164, um, in what we would call December, they, begin, they have a sacrifice, they begin the sacrifices again, and they hold an eight-day festival where they light candles and bring light into the temple and all this symbolic stuff. That's what we call Hanukkah. That's where Hanukkah started. Hanukkah means rededication. And so it's a rededication of the temple, begun again in 164 B.C. Okay? Now, the next year, (laughs) you read it and you feel bad for him, but not really. Antiochus goes into Persia and he tries to go up against the Persians and he's pushed back. So he doesn't have any money and he doesn't get any money. So he goes home and it really talks about him being humiliated and he goes back to Babylon into the the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, because that's his home. And then he hears about all his people being put to flight in Judea And so it talks about him being so melancholy and he couldn't get up and he couldn't eat. And ultimately in 163 B.C., as depressed as he is, he dies. And so that's the end of Antiochus is in 163. So when you you read all of that and you try and put it all together, and believe me, the dates are counting down. I'm giving to you as we would talk about them. You know, the dates count up. In Maccabees, we're counting them down as would be normal for us to talk about. So you've got this invasion that happens in 169, okay? And you've got the rededication in 164. No matter how you slice it, that's not six years. I mean, I I said, what if you start in January and you end in December? (laughs) It's still not six years, okay? So now what do you do? Now you continue to be frustrated, right? This is where I was at all week. And so I'm like, this just doesn't fit together. And I know God is precise. So then, as a, as a last resort, and I always try and use this as a last resort, I read what MacArthur says about it. Because <laughs> if I read him first, then I'll be convinced of his arguments, right? So I read him last. And he frustrates me, okay? Because if you have a study Bible... I mean, what he says, oh, this is straightforward. He states that it's an exact, this is his words, correlation from September 6, 171 B.C. to December 25th, 165-164 B.C., exactly 2,300 days. And if you count the days from those dates, it's exactly 2,300 days. And I'm like, okay. Wait, show me where you got that. So you search, right? Nowhere. Nowhere. I look everywhere. Where does MacArthur get these dates from? And finally, in exhaustion, I find a sermon. This sermon is from April 27, 1980, 35 years ago. Okay, I finally find this sermon by MacArthur. And he says, how did he get those dates, right? And I like this, by the way. He says, well, we know when the temple was rededicated because it's detailed in the Maccabees, right? It's December 25th, 164. That's when it was. And so you start there and you count backwards 2,300 days. And you wind up on... 
yeah, September or whatever, 171. And I'm like, well, I knew that. <laughs> so, and then he says this. There's no significant event that happened in September of 171 that we know about. Nothing. But this we do know. In that same, there's the priests of the Jews are not good people most of the time in this era. Okay? There's some that go and uh, there's one in particular that goes to Antiochus and he bribes him. He pays him more money than the other guys did to make him the high priest. And this is Jason. You may have heard of this name in history. Jason the high priest in the year 171. And Jason tried to Hellenize Judaism. Now, we don't know exactly what he did, but we know it's in this year. And apparently he did something that was significant enough in the eyes of God to start the 2300 days clicking. And so we don't know what it is. We don't know when it, well, we know when it happened. It happened 2300 days before they rededicated the temple. And I love this about MacArthur because this is always true. I mean, I read a ton of history went and did all this research, and I'm sure he had too, and couldn't find anything because that's what he states, but Scripture trumps everything. Scripture is always right regardless of what the arguments of men are. It's always precise, and it's always accurate. So you start at what you know, and you just count backwards, and you get 2,300 days. We don't know the exact event. doesn't correlate to when Antiochus went in there, but this we do know. Jason did what he did under the auspices of Antiochus. Antiochus, everybody knew it because Jason went back to Jerusalem and said, I've been declared the high priest and here's what we're going to do. And, and he changed the way that Judaism worked. And apparently enough, it was significant enough in the eyes of God that it started the 2300 days ticking. Now we don't know that he stopped the sacrifices, but he may have. Go ahead. Um, here's what confuses me on this side. In the context of these verses, we're talking about sacrifices. Right. We're not talking about time and sacrifices. Right. And we know this was a morning or an evening sacrifice. Right. By Jewish reckoning. Right. And then a morning sacrifice. Sure. So there's 2,300 sacrifices. But it's twice that many, right? No, it says days. Yes. Evenings, evenings and mornings, 2,300 days. Well, mine has said to me 2,300 evenings and mornings. Right. But the whole context is sacrifices. Well, that's why, that's why I went, well, there's not 2,300 sacrifices, right? There's 4,600. Right. Because there's a 12 hour sacrifice, a morning sacrifice, 12 hours. There's an evening sacrifice. Sure. 12 hours. Right. 12 and 12 are 24. Sure. That's the day as we know it. Right. So why would you not be able to divide by two? Because it says 2300 evenings and mornings. Sacrifices. No, 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 no. That's not what it says. Well, I know, but you're. <laughs> Well, even if you do that, okay, because I did. I looked at that. There's still nothing that correlates to half of that in Scripture. And there's no timing in, the, in what Antiochus did that correlates to that. I know that, but to make MacArthur's, and I know what you mean, but because I will go back. Well, this is 19. He's a young man when he preaches that in 1980. Yeah. So you're exactly right. Right. He's young. He's in his 30s. Much like what goes on at this church. I mean, no difference. Well, yeah, we won't go that far. Right. I would put this up with that church. All right, so what's your point? My point is sometimes we might be forcing dates to accommodate the Macbeth period. But there's nothing that correlates. 
And believe me, I tried. So you can't force the dates. Was the only time when someone came in and profaned the temple and then the sacrifices were restarted. It hadn't happened yet. Right? All right, now, all right, be careful here because who are we talking about? A horn that came out of one of the four horns of the Greek kingdom. So that, when do we have four horns coming out of the Greek kingdom? Right. Well, no, no, but there is another, there, and there's another description given in chapter 7 that is not this same guy. Different kingdom. Different time frames. Different, clearly different. I mean, is it, this is very clear that this king, this horn in chapter 8 comes out of the four kingdoms that come out of Greece. It's explicitly given. Kingdom. Kingdom. And that kingdom was much larger than what we call Greece. Right? It was basically worldwide would be the term that it would use. Yeah, more than Mideast. More than Mideast. It would go into Europe. It would go into North Africa. Absolutely. It would go into India, which we would not call Mideast. So it's broader than just Mideast. And those terms are clearly given here. So we're talking about something that came out of Greece. It aligns perfectly with Antiochus. It, it, It describes what he did. In detail. Now, Daniel didn't know that, and that's why Daniel was told it's the Greeks. Go ahead. Yeah. The fourth. There's different dates by different people. Went, not, not exactly. Went in to fight Ptolemy in Egypt. Correct. On his way back, went through Jerusalem. Right. Okay, because, uh, I mean, because he, he, he didn't get what he wanted in Egypt. Yeah. And then went back to Babylon. Mm-hmm. Antiochus never returns. Right. He goes into Persia, mm-hmm. or into Syria, right. Persia, in order to capture goods and gold and all of that. He sends his armies back to Jerusalem. Antiochus' sister, Cleopatra, was married to Ptolemy. Yes. Okay? Right, 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 right. Well, we're talking about different Cleopatras. That's a whole different definition of Cleopatra. She was Cleopatra. Right. Right. She was born in 69 BC. We'll get to all that in chapter 11. Right, 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 right. And that's where all that comes. But we're talking about the Greeks, right? That's where this little horn comes from. That's pretty clear. I don't think there's any debate about that. I heard that the little horn, even the first little horn, was actually eventually Rome. Well, yeah, I've heard that too, but I don't agree with it. <laughs> so, but that, that horn is out of the fourth beast. This one's out of the third. Sure, sure. Sure, I mean, and, and Rome took over, um, you know, moved their ha- capital um, into Macedonia. Correct. I mean, so they took over that too. Yes. They never took over Babylon, by the way, just right. as an aside. <laughs> John David, you wanted to say something? Right, right. 
Right, right. So it is a similar sacrifice. The question was about revision. The answer was 2,300 more institutions. It wasn't. And then it was, it wasn't until the sacrifice is reinstated, even though I think that's a covenant with it. it right. It was fully placed, is reinstated. Right. The, the, the reference to the sacrifice is merely just to, to help define what vision I'm talking about. They know how to love vision. Right. But it helps him just clarify what he's talking about. So it's a singular reference, the vision, and then it was mornings and evenings, which it is. It's all throughout scripture. We see Voltaire and Red together like that with a cardinal number like 2300 almost one day right like I said you got to be careful with right you got to read multiple translations yeah they were I mean clearly clearly who said yeah so as to allow both the holy place, the temple, and the host to be trampled. I would take that to mean the Jews. The Jews. And like, so something, there was some event, and it sounds like it's this event on December 12th, 164, with the rededication of the temple. That December 25th, but yeah. Right. <laughs> where things were accomplished. Yes. In, in essence. Yeah, it's, and it's the first time since Antiochus invaded them that it was accomplished. And then they go on and they sacrifice. That's why when Christ comes, they're still sacrificing. That temple is still operative when, when Jesus walks the planet. And it stays that way until 70 BC, uh, AD, which we'll talk about when we get into chapter 9. Okay? What's that? No, 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 not that long. It's important to walk through these things because there are people who say that 2,300 years doesn't match to anything, so this book can't be right. Well, that's where faith comes in, right? Go ahead. For one day. Right. Right, and that's what Hanukkah stands for. The um, <laughs> can't remember what I was going to say now. Got me, got me off track. That's okay. That's okay. Um, and so, I guess my point of going through all of this, and believe me, I looked at a lot of stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. <laughs> Is because I, this I knew when I started that the 2300 days is accurate. Can we match it up to known historical events? The answer is no. We can get close, but we can't exactly match it to historical events. That doesn't make it any less true. Doesn't make it any less accurate because scripture always trumps everything else that men write. And so that's, that's what you go to. And yeah, I can't answer what the event was and I'm comfortable with that. I'm okay with that because I do know that there were things going on in Jewish worship during that time that were changing by the auspices of Antiochus through the agent of, of Jason the high priest. And something was significant enough to God to start the clock. And, and then it ends, like you said, in 164 when they rededicate the temple. So MacArthur was clever. But he just counted backwards. That's all he did. He didn't find anything in all his readings that I didn't find. And he readily admits that in that sermon in 1980. So, what's that? Why do I not start with MacArthur? Because he'll convince me he's right. And so, it's better for me to go and do all the research and all the study without just trusting the words of one man. But his arguments are so sound always read him last after I've done all my study because if I read him first then my study is worth is fruitless so I do the study first and then read the commentaries later and I do that with most of the guys that I read go ahead I think MacArthur was using the Bible sure. as a historical absolutely absolutely what's wrong with that nothing nothing but those who are no, but those who are unbelievers would scoff at that, right? That's okay. I'm all right with that. Something happened. Just don't know exactly what it was. 
Josephus, you know what really frustrates me about Josephus? He doesn't give dates. He just gives events. He doesn't give you the years. So he talks about it and he's accurate, but you don't know what year it is. So that doesn't help a whole lot. And Josephus, by the way, says, um, I think he says 36 months when he talks about Antiochus. No, no. Okay, any questions? We got through verse 14, I think. Okay, so next week we'll pick up in verse 15. Uh, You know now the little bit that I know about this. Thanks for your time.